Our message this morning is based on Psalm 2, Kiss the Son, Kiss the Son. So as we, uh, we are in the season of Advent in the Christian world, and so we continue that theme that we started last week. We looked at Psalm 85. So Psalm 2 is a, a very, very important psalm in, in the Scriptures as it is quoted quite a few times in, in the New Testament. And uh, we can look at it from many different points of view. On, on, a, on a literary level, this one is known as a royal psalm as it is applied to King David. On a, on a strictly we pull back a little bit from that and on a strictly human level, this psalm is about the, the coronation of a new king in Israel and the, and the constant desire of the nations to, to rebel against, against this, this king. But finally, on a divine level, this psalm is messianic as it is perfectly applied to Jesus Christ and this is the way that the New Testament writers saw it and they applied it as they were led by the Holy Spirit. So as we look at the, at the world situation at the moment, there's certainly a lot of gloom and doom about. All of it, uh, all of this, what we are witnessing is unrest, there is Tension, uncertainty, uh, obviously uh, the, the effects of the pandemic has shaken a lot of people's confidence and it, it makes you, you feel both discouraged and anxious, on the one hand discouraged but also anxious about the future. But the Word of God is here. It has always been here. To bring everything into perspective, that's why God speaks to man so that man can look at things. Yes, he sees all this stuff happening around him, but God is saying, come to my level and look at things from my perspective. So this psalm, along with many others, have a a way of, of comforting our hearts challenging us to to stay the course and reminds us that despite how things might appear, everything is happening just as God said it would. Nothing surprises God. So this psalm is divided into four stanzas of three verses each. Each is is perfectly balanced and, and each has almost the same number of words in the original Hebrew language. So each stanza presents four pictures which illustrate four principles which are always applicable in our human situation in whatever time or place. So the first picture that we're going to look at is humanity in revolt from verses 1 to 3. Humanity in revolt. And this is what verses 1 to 3 say. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break the chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. 
yes, at, at, at one level, King David had to be always on guard as he sat on his throne because even one of his own sons, Absalom, rebelled against his father, the king. Tried to depose him and actually for a little while David had to, had to flee. But this is only a dress rehearsal for what they would do to Jesus. Make no mistake, sinful man is continually trying to find a way around God and his Messiah. When Jesus says, I am the way, man says, no, 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 there has to be another way. And they do this either by creating some form of religion to suit themselves or they do it another way by forgetting anything to do with 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 God or religion and suddenly the state, the government, becomes the God. And the emperor themselves deify themselves. They, they call themselves God, as the Caesars and the Pharaohs used to. Well, of course, it's just a sign of rebellion, a sign of opposition to the one and true God. Because rather than submit to God, there is always this unrest in the human heart which leads to rebellion and his laws. And this started way back in the Garden of Eden. Of course, with the encouragement, with the prompting of, of, of Satan. And this rebellion has ever since been ingrained in the human heart. Way back, we believe the lie that we can be like God. By being in control, we can guide our own destiny. But God is holding back on us. And, and the, the, the rebellious heart of each individual, what we are seeing, is simply multiplied a million times when the collective come together. This is why the psalmist said so long ago, the nations conspire. Another version has it in even more colourful language, which, is, which takes on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and, and, and that has the nation's rage. And this phrase depicts colourfully the, the, the worldwide unrest not just now, but throughout history. The psalmist describes, what is he saying when he uses the words conspire and plot? In verse, verse there. What is he saying? What the nations conspire and the people plot in vain. He is describing some backroom deals where the rulers conspire and plot together behind closed doors. Some of us, in trying to get to the truth and trying to understand what is going on, get accused of being paranoid and, oh, you're just believing all these conspiracies all these conspiracy theories. It's all theories, mate. 
when governments, state governments, try to enact laws that restrict freedom of worship, oh, you've just been paranoid. It's all right. Trust the leaders. Yeah, right. Call it what you want, but the Bible is not afraid to call it a conspiracy, a plot. And we are experiencing ideological unrest because of the, why? Because of the active suppression of truth. That's why it's so hard to get to it, because there's an active suppression of truth. Romans 1.18, look it up. And while we don't want politics to become our religion, the current events, particularly in the US, the world's most powerful nation, are has to be concerning to us. There is nothing new about this. There is nothing new about this. It's happened before. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter used this psalm in the book of Acts to explain the opposition that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Um, and, And not just Jesus, but then... After Jesus died and rose again, as he promised them, he says, the way they come after me, they're going to come after you. So there was an increasing persecution of Christians throughout the empire. And so Peter writes to the Christians, and this is what, um, this is what um, Luke says, sorry, Luke says in the book of Acts. On their release, Peter and John this is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Acts 4, 23 to 31, you can follow it. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So opposition was rising up. The leaders, the government, everybody was in opposition to the Christians And so what did the people do? They got together in prayer. And this is what they said. This is how they prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Psalm 2. Indeed, indeed, continues it. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to what? To conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God Boldly. What were they praying for? They were praying for courage. 
They were praying for God to do miraculous signs and wonders. No, no not so they could get more followers on and, and, and more support for their ministry. No, they were saying, so this would open up the way so that people would understand that the power of God is visible. These are the signs that point towards God. They don't point toward us. It points towards God. Through Jesus. And, and here Peter identifies the names and actually names them. He's not afraid to call it out. He, he names the conspiring nations and people such as Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews. But we're all in it. And with the benefit of hindsight, it's, Peter is looking back. He's not just looking back at the events in Jerusalem, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's able to see how this was already being foretold a thousand years before by King David. Was Peter being paranoid? No! It's not paranoia, it's the truth. These people met behind closed doors. They drew a careful plan to crucify the Messiah and then they set out on the day to bring the rest of the crowd behind them with false allegations. When you think about it, it's not that hard to move the mob from Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him within a few days. That's how fickle the crowd is. That's how fickle the mob is. Careful propaganda. But of course, this was what God had decided beforehand should happen anyway. We can either choose to see the paradox of God's sovereignty versus human responsibility or we can see the marvellous harmony of the plan of redemption. And God's plan of redemption, there's nothing that will stand in its way. Secondly, the second picture, we go from verses 4 to 6. God is in control. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying... I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. With all earth in rebellion, what is God's response? Oh no, what am I going to do? Oh, I don't know. What do, what do we reckon we should do, guys? Hey, hey, hey. Any ideas? What is God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He's not all that worried about it. In fact, he laughs. But it's not the laughter of delight and pleasure, not something funny. In the King James Version, the, the, the word used is actually derision. Derision is a deep form of mockery and ridicule. This is because the efforts of men, of the kings of the earth, Whatever they do, whatever they plot, whatever they conspire, it blows up in their faces. And, and the contrast in the psalm is, is startling. The powers of hell may plan, the powerful of the earth may plot, but all the while God is laughing. 
while man gets really worked up down here, there is this wonderful calmness in heaven. Shouldn't that give us assurance? Shouldn't that give assurance to all the citizens of heaven? That is, if you consider yourself a citizen of heaven, should give it the assurance that everything is just working out that God had planned a long time before. If God before us, who can be against us? And despite all these efforts, which are in vain and will prove to be in vain, in fact, God even uses all their plotting, all their conspiracies to do what? To accomplish his own divine purposes and ends anyway. It didn't matter what the people did in verses 1 to 3. Jesus was going to be king and he is king today. It says, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. God appointed him king, king over all the earth. Nothing is left out of his dominion. Jesus is king over creation. He's king over the saints. He's even king over the enemies who do not recognize him as such. The Bible says he's king of kings, lord of lords, whether they acknowledge him or not. And in fact, everyone will one day acknowledge Jesus as king, whether they like it or not. Sure, man can set himself up against God all he wants, but when he does, he ought to prepare for the worst. Even if it doesn't come in this lifetime, there is still the judgment day that he can look forward to, or perhaps dread. Verse 5 says that he will rebuke them in his anger and terrify them in his wrath. What a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Third, the third picture, the king's declaration, verses 7 to 9. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now this wonderful declaration in in verse 7 is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. As as Hebrews, at the beginning of Hebrews, he compares Jesus, he's superior to everything else. And and the the King James Version has the word begotten in verse 7. Now this word begotten has been a lightning rod of controversy in theological circles for hundreds of years. Um, this, ha- this happens both in evangelicalism and it happens certainly in the realm of the cults, whether the Mormons or the JWs and others. The dilemma in this verse is this. Is Jesus... And you have to switch your brain on, right? If you haven't done so already. Thinking caps on. Is Jesus the eternal son or did he become the son at some other point? What point? Well, 
Did he become the son in, at the incarnation, which is a popular one? Did he become the son at the resurrection? Or become the son at the exaltation? And the idea being that while Christ, that there's no dispute in evangelical circles that, that Christ has pre-existed. He has always, he, but he has always pre-existed. But he has not always, the argument goes, he has not always been the son of God. And those that hold this view believe Christ became the son of God at some point in history. With the most common view being that Christ became the son of God at his incarnation. Believe it or not, this was actually one of the positions held by John MacArthur before he changed his position. And they, they hold to this position because they want to try... They want to hold true to Psalm 2 and then what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. But this presents many problems. For one, and there are many, but I'll just name one. One is it, it, it becomes it comes dangerously close to modalism and, and could easily lead to false teachings about God's nature. You know what modalism is? One of the illustrations of modalism, which is a dangerous one, I've heard it, is that say, well, it's like water in three states. You have vapour, you have solid and you have liquid. They say the, uh, the vapour is the Holy Spirit, the uh, solid... Uh, and the water become the Father and the Son. And so it transforms. It's the same water, but it's transforming. That's modalism. It changes the same substance, but it changes in different forms, which is very, dip, very dangerous to use that illustration, by the way. But this is what the Nicene Creed says. The Nicene Creed is... Because the early church debated with this. What is the nature of Christ? How, do, how are we going to work this? Well, 300 years they debated and say we need to come up with a statement that declares what we believe in. And it came in the, in the form of the Nicene Creed in 325 AD. And this is what it says, in particular, just to this. It's a lot longer, obviously, but this is what it says concerning Christ. That we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. You got that? The doctrine of the eternal sonship affirms that the second person of the the Godhead, of the Trinity, has eternally existed as the Son. In other words, there was never a time when he was not the Son of God and there was, has always been a father-son relationship within the Godhead. So the, the, the begetting in verse 7 and its cross-references in the rest of the New Testament has nothing to do with his origin, but it has everything to do with the fact that he is of the same essence as the Father. So when we think of Christ as having been begotten by God, like for example, John 3, 16, 
we think of Jesus as having come from God, the very nature of God. Are you still with me? One way to explain this is to say that the Bible uses terminology. You know, why are we struggling so much with all these deep theology and stuff, Paul? You're confusing me right here. One way to explain this is to say that the Bible uses terminology like father, son, anthropomorphically. Wow, that's a big word for a little boy. Uh, Anthropomorphically. Anthropomorphically means that we assign to the Godhead human characteristics. We project what we are as humans to. That's what God is like. So we're trying to accommodate these incredibly heavenly, incredible heavenly truths to our finite mortal minds. So the eternal we're trying to accommodate. And so we're trying to use human terms that we can relate to in order to explain. Perhaps a better way and a more correct way to do it, however, is to see that our human father-son relationships. I'm a father, I have three sons and a daughter, that our human father-son relationships are merely earthly pictures, uh, a reflection, if you will, of, of an infinite greater heavenly reality. feel a lot more comfortable with that one. Because what happens is that as humans we have to humbly recognise that we are limited in our knowledge. Like this, there are so many other biblical doctrines that it's biblical concepts that it's really hard to understand or get your head around. For example, the old argument between election and human responsibility, God's sovereignty, The argument goes on. And then he declares, you will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Doesn't sound very loving, does it? Doesn't say, you're going to cuddle them. Are you okay? There are certainly passages where God says, come, let us reason together his invitation. And God is patient. But one day his patience does run out. One day the doors of the ark will close and God's judgment begins. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. He's giving us God's answer to man's continuing rebellion. And so while the powers of of evil continue to plot behind closed doors, God tells us what he is going to do in this world. God tells us what he's going to do. There is no secret. He's telling us. Through his prophets, through his servants, through you, his son or daughter, he uses you to tell others of God's plans, of God's judgment. Sure, he doesn't tell us when he's going to do it, the ultimate judgment. 
It's not, not for us to know, he says, but this is for us to know, to understand. He does tell us everything we need to know. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know. And this is, of course, in the Scriptures. Back in Genesis, he promised the Messiah, remember, after man sinned in rebellion. He promised the Messiah, he says, and I will put, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That's a very messianic statement right there back in Genesis. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Son of God, Son of man, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of God, came with a mission. In Galatians, we jump all the way to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. But when the, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might have that we might receive adoption to sonship. And yes, as Christians, we know that Christ's resurrection is the pledge of his universal triumph. One day Christ will reign over all the earth, so it's certainly folly to resist God's decree. And this is where we come to the last picture, verses 10 to 12. Therefore you kings be wise... Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a message to the kings and judges of the earth to those in leadership, those influential and powerful men who see no need of a saviour. Be very careful. Those who are filled with pride and egos that are larger than themselves who continue to conspire and plot behind closed doors. Just like you and me, unfortunately, they are simply fallen men and women who need to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. They are told to be wise, be instructed. In other words, to use some sound reasoning here to try and get to the truth and consider what you're doing. And that's the Lord's invitation. Come, let us reason together. Because why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is why we are to serve the Lord with fear. Remembering that everything we do, is, is, everything that is happening is working according to his will. If, if we could just realise that we want to be part of his plan rather than opposing his plan. I hope that the leaders and other powers that be, that it is a terrible thing to come against the living God, the one who is far mightier and wiser and higher than all of them and realise your vanity and repent of it. 
need to pray for our leaders as the Bible instructs us to do. The devil will wake up. Come to their senses. I like this invitation. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. There are many kisses in the Bible and we all remember the kiss of betrayal, of course. Not that type of kiss. Here is the kiss of submission. It's, it's, the, it's extending the hand and the person comes and kisses the hand of the, of the king. Kissing the hand in grateful, loving submission, recognising his supremacy. Kiss the son. Another word that is, another picture of this is lay down your crowns before his throne. Prostrate before him. There is a vast difference between a man or woman who has gladly bowed in the presence of Christ and kissed him here on earth because they will be welcomed before his throne and to hear his words, come good and faithful servant, come, I am your king. This is the invitation to humanity to be reconciled to the Son. Jesus Christ, the central figure in human history, blessed are all who have taken their refuge in him. Amen.